If you're from New Orleans or you've lived here for a minute, you know how often locals identify themselves by their neighborhood. Before Katrina, for thousands of New Orleans residents, these neighborhoods were public housing developments. The Magnolia, B.W. Cooper, C.J. Pete, the Calliope. All those developments are now gone. They've been demolished. And so they're not part of what's been this ongoing citywide tricentennial conversation. But these communities remain super important parts of thousands of people's lives and the city's history. So for one of our final tripod episodes, we decided to hear from residents of one of those neighborhoods, The Desire. I tell people all the time that I'm from Desire, Louisiana, and they're puzzled by they never heard of such city. I'm not from the Desire Project. I'm from Desire, Louisiana. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. So what road are we on? This is actually Alver. This is Alva Street. This is the end of the development. Leonard Smith grew up in the Desire community. He's giving me a tour of his old neighborhood. He used to roller skate here as a kid. But during Christmas time, they would close Alva Street down because everybody got skates during Christmas, skates and bikes. And so they would skate along. It would be hundreds of people out there skating, roller skating. That sounds so fun. Yeah, they call them unions back then. You got you got your set of unions. Girl, I can't stand it when you start acting funny. And look at me like I'm bugging you, honey. I wanted this tour from Leonard because I had never been to the neighborhood. And apparently, I'm not alone. Well, Desire is one of those remote communities within the city. There's a lot of people who never even been back in Desire and who may have lived in New Orleans all their life. Being there, it felt remote and pretty bare. Lots of empty lots, tall grass, blighted homes. Driving around, we were physically closed in by train tracks on two sides and an industrial canal on a third. This part of the Upper Ninth Ward was supposed to be industrial. It wasn't meant to be residential. It also actually used to be a city dump. The landfill was made in 1909 and became a dump for both residential and industrial waste. Now, fast forward to the Housing Act of 1949, which authorized new construction. People saw this area as an opportunity and said, You know, this is some cheap land that we could probably build houses there. We can put a development there. The dump closed and new homes were built, marketed specifically to black World War II veterans. And it would always be advertised in the Times-Picayune as real estate for coloreds. Hey, Mr. G.I., hello, Mr. Colored G.I. To commemorate the heroism and sacrifice of all colored soldiers who served in the various wars. And this is the first time this has happened in the South and that type stuff, so. By the 1960s, houses were made available for anyone, not just veterans, and Leonard's family made their move from uptown in 1964. It was the first opportunity for my parents to be able to purchase a home. So we moved on Metropolitan Street, which was around the corner from my grandmother, my mom's mom and dad. Meanwhile, as the homeowner side was developing, public housing was built across the street. This wasn't the first public housing development in New Orleans. There was already the Magnolia, you know, the St. Thomas, the Florida was a white project. But for the African-Americans, they needed housing and they needed it in a big way. And so they built the Desire Development public housing, right across from Leonard's house. Yeah, Leonard lived in Beverly Hills, more or less, uh, which is about five steps from the Desire Project. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is Dan Perkins, who grew up in the Desire development. The Desire was the last public housing project to be built in the city and the largest. Dan was one of over 13,000 residents living in 1,860 units. We could have had our own parish, actually. It was so big, you know. Dan's household was big, too. He lived in a three-bedroom apartment with 10 other kids, and he loved it. First of all, I wouldn't exchange my growing up for nothing in the world. His mom cooked all day for her family, along with anyone else that came through. She wouldn't turn nobody away. I go in the pantry to get something. I see somebody else I don't even know in the pantry getting some cornflakes. Who, who are you? The door was open. That was the kind of heart she had. Because her, her heart was open, she kept the doors open. Remember, there are at least 13,000 people living on 100 acres, and 10,000 of them were kids. And for 10,000 kids, there was one playground. Just imagine one playground with just about three or four swings and one sliding board and one merry-go-round for 13,000 people. So we had to wait our turn to get on the swing. Sometimes they wait two days to get on the swing. <laughs> You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. When Dan got older, he started to realize the scope of the development and how few resources there were to share. He also realized how isolated they were from the rest of the city. Think about where we were located, between train tracks. And if there's a train on the east side, then the ambulance couldn't get in until the train had passed. And sometimes a train might take an hour or two hours. They'll stop their arrest before they can cross. We were locked in in emergency situations. Many people died. Now there are two overpasses that can get you over the tracks when there's a train, but not when Dan was growing up. There was only one way in and one way out. He said it was like a booby trap. And then there was that dump, the Agriculture Street landfill, that had been open since 1909 and then sealed shut in the late 1950s. When Hurricane Betsy hit in 1965, they opened it back up to drop all the debris from the entire city. This was just a year after Leonard moved in. His house got a few feet of water and the public housing apartments were also flooded. Detached porches, collapsed roofs, it was bad. So while the neighborhood's trying to clean up, the city was dumping literally all of its trash right on top of them. Here's Leonard. The problem was, though, they would always burn stuff on the dump. You know, back then we used to hang clothes on the, on the, on the clothesline outside. But when those days that they were burning the trash on the dump, you had to bring the clothes in because otherwise it would have that smell. But still, Leonard and Dan loved their neighborhood and repped it hard. We were poor, but we didn't know it. Until they did. Both boys went to George Washington Carver High School and played in the famous Carver marching band. Leonard also played basketball, so he was extra popular. It wasn't really until they'd leave the desire to go play another team when they realized they had a reputation. We really didn't know all of the negative things until we started traveling with the sports team and with the band and that type stuff. We would go to different places to play around the city that we had a reputation, you know, that people were scared to play us kind of thing. It wasn't just Leonard. He told me a friend of his named Kurt had a similar wake-up call. He didn't know that he lived in the ghetto till he heard it on the TV. <laughs> the people that lived in the other neighborhoods, you know, they, they deemed us 
as bad people. They wouldn't come through there. Regardless to how you felt about yourself, it was a stigma living in the desire. You were seen as poor. You were seen as underclass. This is Adrian Woods, who grew up with Dan and Leonard. And I didn't want to be seen like that. But I was going to school at Southern University in New Orleans where students came from everywhere. And what were people's reactions? <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. You know, oh my gosh, we live in a desire and that's a horrible place. And, you know, people live on top of each other. And then I'm always explaining, well, no, not really. It's only four families in each building. Buildings ranged in size anywhere from like four to 16 units, but they were all just two stories high. So it wasn't like, you know, we had 100 people like some of the buildings they had in Chicago, for example. But just got kind of tired of explaining that. Because that wasn't her experience. She also has great memories growing up in the desire and had her whole family surrounding her. My oldest sister lived the second porch, and then the second oldest sister lived the porch behind us. And my grandmother lived downstairs from us. That was the dream. <laughs> it was more like family, you know. It, it was very family-oriented, whether they were blood-related to you or not. You know, everybody was your cousin. Adrian says people felt totally safe. We would walk to the park, dust dawn, and nobody felt any fear. Leonard agrees. Most people thought they were shooting up this eye all night, and, but people walked the streets all night long, and nobody was concerned about anybody robbing them or anything like that. But for some reason, Desire still had a bad rap. People saw it as super dangerous and avoided that part of town. I asked Leonard why he thought people had this negative perception, and he thinks part of it is because of how Desire looked. Just a few years after the development opened, parts of it already looked run down. There's a reason for that. Desire was the only one out of all of the developments that was actually built with wood. All of the other public housing developments were built on top of cement foundations, but Desire, built on a landfill in a sinking swamp, had wooden foundations. All the other developments were made out of brick, but Desire, brick veneer, fake bricks. Just six years after folks moved in, they saw problems. You had ceilings that were coming down, you had steps that were moving from the the foundation, you had holes in floors and that type of stuff, but it was because it was on a wooden foundation as opposed to a cement foundation. And so, of course, over time, with New Orleans humidity and the, the dampness and living in a swamp, you know, it's just a matter of time. It was the largest project built, the last project built, and the cheapest. The housing development of New Orleans, Hano, cut a lot of corners on construction. But officials still came by a few times a year to do inspections. Oh, they were terrible. Dan Perkins. You know, the way they would treat my mother, you know. I was so tempted to tell the inspector lady where to go at. But I would have got my mother in trouble and got us in trouble and everybody else. Adrian Woods also hated these inspections. Every so often, this lady who works for the housing authority would come and they would expect your house to make sure it was clean, make sure that there were no chalk or writings on your wall, and most importantly, they checked to make sure the people who you say were living in there were living in there. To get an apartment in the desire, you had to be below a certain income bracket, which led to many of the apartments being single-parent households. Inspectors were coming around to make sure boyfriends, girlfriends, whoever, weren't living in the apartments unregistered. And there were lots of other things Hanno made sure weren't in the apartments. A toaster, 
iron, air conditioning. We want a loud, because they figure if you could have that, you, you, you're not qualified to be in a, Isn't that something? According to Dan, if the Hano inspector saw you could afford certain electrical appliances, then she thought maybe you could afford to live on your own. Great for morale, huh? Not to mention image. But these inspections didn't stop Dan's mom. My mother had toasters. We had coffee pots. We had electric uh, stuff. We had to hide them. I wanted to pull those things out so bad and show the inspector. Yeah, we have it. Now what are you going to do? But I know what would have happened. She would put us out. We would have been on the streets. We weren't allowed to have things that other people had because we were a project. We were in the hood, in the ghetto, you know. That's where they wanted to keep us at. Year after year, Dan watched his mother resist. They weren't allowed to have chickens. She raised chickens. They weren't allowed to have a dog. She got a dog. And after 15 years of living in the same apartment, she felt ownership over the place. She put up a white picket fence. I helped build it. And when the inspector came and saw it, she told my mother, I want that fence down. She told the inspector, you want it down, you take it down. She won that one. She even put a swimming pool in her front yard. We were determined to have a desire to be where we were. We had no other choice. What were we going to do? They always say no good thing came out of Desire Project, but they were wrong. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Leonard Smith is working on a documentary about the desire. His whole motivation is to have people who actually grew up there tell their side of the story and disrupt the negative image. It made me wonder, and I asked Leonard, whether there was any legitimacy to the negative image. He said definitely, no doubt, the desire did become increasingly dangerous, especially after the famous Black Panther shootout in 1970, which is a whole other story. Go look it up. He says the neighborhood really started to change with Richard Nixon. We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. And that's when the drugs really hit the communities. Nixon declared a war on drugs in June of 1971. He dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and launched things like mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants. He's had one of his advisors that mentioned that that was the whole purpose of the war on drugs, is to actually get the drugs in the black community. John Ehrlichman was that former advisor who later admitted to the press that Nixon had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. I quote Ehrlichman's words. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leader, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And so that's when we really started seeing the crack cocaine and the crime went up then. But that's only natural because that's what happens. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, the war on drugs was taking its toll on the desire community. Some people were moving out, and a lot of people, mostly black men, were being locked up. And so the population shrank. 
Then, in 1996, with a Hope 6 grant, the public housing was demolished to make way for a new mixed-income neighborhood called the Estates. Katrina devastated the Estates. Driving around the neighborhood with Leonard recently, that devastation is still clear as day. There are gaping holes in houses, many of which are missing entire facades. From the street, I could see straight into second stories, straight into bedrooms. Oh, look, wait, do you see there, there are clothes? Yeah. There yeah. are clothes in that closet. Yeah. You know, it's amazing when you look at the rest of the city and look at how great things have become since Katrina. And then you come back to a community like this and say, wow, look like the storm hit yesterday. If a neighborhood falls off the radar, what does that mean for the people that are still there? Oh, that's somebody you love to talk to. You know this person? Yeah. Hey, Shannon. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing fine. We slow down to greet a woman who's just running out of her house in slippers to grab her mail. How you doing, Shannon Rainey, president of the residence of Gordon Plaza? Gordon Plaza is a little neighborhood that was developed in the late 70s during Mayor Dutch Morial's administration. It was built on the old city dump, which had been officially covered over with sand and soil and redeveloped as a residential neighborhood. Mayor Morial championed this as another opportunity for low-income African-Americans to qualify for home ownership. This is my very first house I ever bought. That was over 30 years ago, when Shannon Rainey was 25 years old. As soon as she moved in, she started planting a garden. And that's when we discovered different types of cans and ties and drums with the X's on it, the skeleton head and all that on it. So you were digging up in your lawn and found actual, like, toxic mm-hmm. cans with mm-hmm. skulls on it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. Yes. And This is how Shannon learned she had bought a home on top of a landfill. No one had told her or the other homeowners the history of the site. But an independent study of the soil went on to find 154 different toxins, 50 of which cause cancer. The EPA would go on to give the area Superfund status in 1994, which is when Shannon and her neighbors started fighting for a buyout. Numerous residents have died of cancer that trace back to the toxins. Residents can't sell their homes and move somewhere else because the property has no value. But nobody wants to take ownership of the problem. It's been sitting on the back burner too long. Too many mayors have come and gone. Shannon traces the blame back to Mayor Dutch Morial and says she was equally disappointed by how his son, Mark, handled the situation when he became mayor. Next, Sidney Bartholomew, then Ray Nagin, and then Mayor Mitch Landrew. And he says that before he take and uh, relocate us, he'll build a jail, and that he did. Now, LaToya Cantrell is mayor. Shannon says that on her campaign trail, she promised to help relocate the 54 remaining households in Gordon Plaza. But these days... We can't even get her to come and walk through the community or give us a, a meeting. So we The mayor's office has told reporters that because litigation is pending, the mayor is unable to make specific comments on the status of Gordon Plaza residents. But they're still fighting. Because we're not going to stop until we get relocated. Mm-hmm. So for now, Shannon and her neighbors live day after day surrounded by abandoned buildings and empty lots, breathing in toxins with nowhere to go. As Leonard and I drove away, we saw a group of kids with backpacks hanging off their Carver uniforms. We slowed down to let them cross the street. 
they were walking home from school. is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music, to the entire Tripod Editorial Committee, and to Tripod Editor Eve Abrams. Catch Tripod on air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. You can hear Tripod whenever you want by subscribing to the podcast. And this is the, this is the final episode before our huge finale coming up in a couple months so this is really this is the time to to catch up on what you've missed and uh look out for the ultimate tripod finale coming at you at the end of the year it's going to examine the indigenous and native perspective of the tricentennial in new orleans working on that as we speak very excited to share it with you so keep up to date we're going to have another event and you can keep up with us by following us on social media at Tripod Nola, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we're also building a website, so there really is a lot going on. You can help us build that website by uh, donating to the effort, and you can find that on wwno.org. Uh, so really, many reasons to keep in touch. And if you want to keep in touch with me, I'm Lane Caplev on Twitter, and I'm on there. You know, not as much as other people, not as much as one would you know maybe suggest i be strategically for some reason but uh anyway thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon we have some tripod extras coming up between now and the finale to uh feed your appetite so don't fret i'm lane cap and levinson and i'll tripod you later